the longest discourse in the Pali Canon, that's this grouping of texts that uh, brought to us the words of the Buddha as best we know them, the, the Pali Canon, is in what's called the Diganikaya, and it's the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. And it's this long, very long um, text that describes the last months of the Buddha's life. And what's, um, it's a fascinating depiction of the Buddha, how he taught his life, his world, as he was coming to the end of that life after teaching for about 45 years. When he became awakened in his early 30s uh, in Bodhgaya under the Bodhi tree, said that he contemplated uh, the bliss of that deliverance for a number of weeks before he decided to share those teachings. And when he um, looked around as to who might be able to appreciate that. At first, he w- wasn't going to teach. He didn't think anyone could could appreciate what he had awoken to. But he finally decided to go find uh, his five form- former friends who had been with him on the ascetic path. And, and so he walked for 200 miles from Bodhgaya to Sarnath, which is near uh, Varanasi, um, Banaras. And when he met with them, these five ascetics, what he taught them, what he said to them to distill everything he had opened to, what he had discovered and all he had contemplated in these weeks since his awakening and on this long journey to them, the first teaching he gave was the Dhamma Chaka Pawatana Sutta, and that's the putting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma. He taught them the Four Noble Truths. And this is what he considered central to convey what he had understood under the Bodhi tree. And so that was the beginning of his journey, his practice, his sadhana of teaching. And then at the end of the life, his life as, as depicted in this Mahaparinibbana Sutta, he was still teaching the Four Noble Truths. Taught a lot of other things too. It's kind of this... Long Sutta is the, his highlights of his teaching, the essence of his teaching, but he was still teaching the Four Noble Truths because he considered it central to uh, understanding, to coming to the kind of freedom that he realized for himself. And I've had the, the blessing, the privilege of going on pilgrimage to the whole, what's called the holy sites of the Buddha's life, So his birth, awakening, um, his death, and there are other ones too where he gave that first sermon. So to Lumbini, Bodhgaya, um, the sermon was given in the deer park at Isipatana in Sarnath. He spent many, many rains retreats in this place called Savati. And so many of the discourses will say, and thus have I heard, in, in Savati, the Buddha said this, spent something like 23 month retreats there in Savati. And then his dying, his death happened in Krishnagar. And going to those places that have now become these places of, of deep reverence for Buddhists from all over the world is very powerful. And you feel 
the, um, the impact of his teachings and can see through these places how central this teaching of the Four Noble Truths was and how it was represented in each of those places. And so he talked again and again about what he considered was necessary to bring people to awakening, Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path. So in the same way we here might be repeating ourselves, and I see you know, the themes that we keep coming back to. Kamala talked the other night about impermanence and the power of opening to this deep truth of impermanence. And then Richard followed on pointing to how that's one of the three characteristics impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self. And then the night after James spoke about how we find freedom through non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, which in their active forms are what causes suffering, dukkha. And so all of these weaving into each other and the Four Noble Truths encompasses all of them. The same uh, pointing to where we get caught, why we get caught, and how to find freedom. So that's the the theme of the talk tonight, the Four Noble Truths. And as Richard said the other night in his talk, the, the Buddha was not interested in speculative philosophy, you know, about the beginnings of things, the end of the world, existence or not existence. He would always say, that's not the point. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what's important. He was always interested in, as he would say, suffering and the end of suffering. Never talked about suffering without including what frees us, what releases us from this suffering. So he was very pragmatic in his teachings. And I think it's one of the reasons why we resonate with his teachings is they're so clear-eyed about what's needed here. Not beliefs or philosophies, but this practical advice. And so the Buddha was often um, viewed, would even talk of himself as being a doctor or physician, where he was diagnosing what our problem was, what our illness is, seeing what the symptoms were, and seeing what the prognosis would be, and coming up with a cure and a methodology to manifest that cure. And so that's one of the ways the Four Noble Truths is often talked about. Oh, there's a problem, there's a, you know, we we often talk about cause and effect, but the way the Buddha would sometimes put it out is there's an effect, this is what the effect is, here's the cause. So the effect is suffering, what's the cause? Craving. The effect, the possibility of freedom, what's the cause? The Eightfold Path. And so he would bring it together in this very kind of practical and pragmatic way. And so, sort of the essence of the Four Noble Truths, what he pointed to again and again is suffering and the cause of suffering, craving. When we hear it that way, though, we can think, I just said it, that craving causes suffering. But really, when we understand it completely, craving is suffering. The suffering is right there in the craving. But in our confusion, we think that getting what we want will bring us happiness. And the Buddha really wanted us to challenge that belief, that delusion, and look for ourselves. Does it work? Does 
Do you ever really get what you want or what you think you want? And if you do, does it work? Does it give you the happiness, the satisfaction that you thought it would? Now, of course, getting what we want, what we think we need or want, um, does bring some happiness, not to deny that. But really, as we start to look at that process, we can see that what's actually happened is the craving has ceased. We've achieved the object, the experience, the relationship, whatever it is, the, the, this sensual pleasure. What's most pleasurable is that active force of craving has ceased. The object just does then what objects do, becomes otherwise, you know, we get tired of it, doesn't give us what we want. But what happens very quickly is that craving finds somewhere else to land. And this is the cycle we're in over and over again. So we have to start looking at that. And again, this is the Buddha's advice to us. Look and see for yourself how this craving, and again, craving includes the the not wanting, the craving for something not to be, um, how we chase after that, and yet it doesn't give us the satisfaction that we think it it will. And all of the longing and the strategizing and the planning and the worrying and the agitation and the restlessness in service of this craving and this tantalizing thing out there. And so looking at this very process, which we do over and over again in the littlest ways, in a moment, in, our, in a period of meditation, or over the course of our lives, looking at it directly, this is what the Four Noble Truths are telling us. So the Four Noble Truths, they're not a list to believe. If you memorize them, you don't automatically become a card-carrying Buddhist and you're good to go. They're actually practices. They're teachings that the Buddha said, see in this way, understand this for yourself. This is the path to freedom. This is how we get there, by understanding this completely. So there's a big shift that can happen when we go from seeing them as kind of an idea or a philosophy, or that's what Buddhists believe, the Four Noble Truths, shorthand for Buddhism, to this imperative from the Buddha. Look at your own minds and hearts and see suffering, the creation of suffering, the ending of suffering, and the way to the ending of suffering. Ajahn Sumedho, who founded Amaravati Monastery in England, had an enormous effect on Western Buddha Dhamma, would, would often say, the Four Noble Truths is all, if all other teachings of the Buddha were lost and we had the Four Noble Truths, the whole path is there. Everything is contained in this teaching. And so for us to really understand what it was the Buddha was saying here and how to put this into practice for ourselves, this is really the heart of everything we've been doing here. So these four truths... The first truth, noble truth, is that of suffering. And what it actually says is something like, there is suffering. It doesn't say life is suffering, doesn't say, you know, we're always suffering, but it says there is suffering, that inherent in 
being a human being and being any conscious being, there is and there will be suffering. And the word suffering, and I'm translating here as suffering, and again, Richard talked quite a bit about this, is dukkha, dukkha. And as he said, there's no good translation. We use suffering, it's kind of what was used when these texts were first translated. It, 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 it conveys something of the meaning, but dukkha is both more subtle than suffering and more profound than suffering. So, you know, just saying dukkha is often the best use of using that word, but it encompasses this whole range of experiences from the slightest unsatisfactoriness or discomfort to the deepest depths of pain and despair. And so you'll hear people translated as stress or anguish, unreliability, unsatisfactoriness, imperfection, and it's here, right? We don't have to go far to find the experience of dukkha. Even sitting as you are right now listening to a Dharma talk, sometimes you might think of it as the high point of your day and then you're sleepy or you don't like the topic or your body starts aching. It's right here in the pain of the body, the torments in our minds and our hearts, sense of loneliness or shame that we might have, sense of judging ourselves or others. And we can start to see as we look at this question, all of the strategies we've used over our lives to try to find happiness. And yet, as you reflect in this way, and this is what the Buddha did as he came to penetrate this profound truth, All of them were just that, strategies. And the happiness that they brought was always fleeting, temporary, inevitably subject to change, to loss, to alternation. Once we start to see that for ourselves, and on this, again, deep level, level of of some kind of truth, we know we have to start looking elsewhere. And that's why you're all here. You wouldn't be here unless you'd had a sense of that. That the Dhamma, these teachings, this Dhamma, another translation of Dhamma is the truth. That seeing more clearly the truth of suffering and the cause of suffering, that that's the way to happiness. That's more reliable than all of these other things that we've tried to chase after. And it's called the noble, they're called, all called noble truths, but why is suffering noble? Why is it the noble truth of suffering, the first noble truth, dukkha? Well, it's considered noble when it brings us to practice, when it brings us to the path, when it actually shows us its nature and becomes a doorway to this kind of freedom that the Buddha is talking about. That's when it becomes noble. Because as Ajahn Chah says, again, another Thai forest meditation master, there's a kind of suffering that leads to more suffering and the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering. Noble suffering is the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And that could be in a moment through clear seeing 
or the kind of suffering that brings us to the path, that brings us into um, an urgency or a, 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 um, a, a confidence or trust that this path of practice is where freedom and ease and contentment is to be profound. That's when it becomes noble. So we start to see, again, this first noble truth, not as something to believe as a Buddhist, but as a truth to be penetrated, suffering. Each of the truths has what's called three aspects to it, really three practices. And so for the first noble truth, the first is just a declarative statement, there is dukkha, there is suffering. The practice is suffering should be understood. And then for each of them, the the last practice is kind of reflection. Oh, I understood suffering. The Buddha said, it wasn't until I understood suffering and could know for myself this understanding that this freedom started to be open to. And so the first one is just there is suffering. We drop the resistance, the idea, the fantasy that somehow if we got the deck chairs on the Titanic all neatly lined up, the boat wouldn't sink, right? And, you know, that's a strong image, but we're all doing that in one way or the other. Richard spoke about that so eloquently the other night with talking about aging and the inevitable destination for every single one of us here. So it's really facing that and then facing all the the different manifestations we can have of dukkha. And so we start to see that dukkha doesn't mean something's wrong, that we've made a mistake, that we didn't try hard enough, that we didn't have enough information or enough whatever, you know, money or status or whatever we think might bring happiness. We see that for ourselves. And then suffering should be understood. Again, Ajahn Sumedho, when I heard him say this, it was such a strong image for me. He said, it means to stand under like a waterfall. And there was something, you know, you can imagine a strong waterfall, and if you are willing to step under it, you're just completely immersed in that experience of the falling water, and you surrender to that truth, to that truth. And so we can know directly, right here on retreat, again, we don't have to go looking very far, to frame our experience. We've talked about how when we're having some a difficult experience, the framing of, oh, it's unpleasant Vedna can be so helpful to kind of bring us closer to the experience and not spin out into aversion and story. In the same way, knowing it as dukkha, oh, this is dukkha. Here's the first noble truth. Right here in my knee is the first noble truth. Right here, this experience, this pain in my heart, this longing. Oh, this is dukkha. And it can then be a doorway to lead us deeper into connection. And it's really important when we're experiencing dukkha to not measure or judge or evaluate oh, this is minor dukkha, other people have more dukkha, or I shouldn't be bothered about this because 
someone else's experience is more extreme or I had this big, much bigger problem, why am I so uh, caught up in this particular form? It's dukkha. Wherever you find it, could be deep trauma, difficult memories, heartache, loneliness, loss. It could be the loss of a pet, of a beloved dog or cat or bird. And the heart really grieves. This is dukkha. This is all dukkha. It can be, as I said, in our knee pain or our back pain. This is dukkha. And again, as Richard said, when we see it in this way, each of those can be our teacher. Not a problem, not something we need to get rid of or fix, but actually something we can learn from. And so we start to look at how our relationship to experience is what actually causes a lot of our suffering. And again, this is a second arrow. We've talked about it a lot. There's the initial arrow of whatever pain there is, mind and body. But the second arrow of, you know, why me or this shouldn't be happening or all of our strategies around it, our resistance and our trying to replace it with something more pleasant. The second arrow is the kind of suffering really we need to work with. Of course, we work with the first arrow too, but the second arrow, you can really see how we perpetuate it, we create it. And so we get curious about dukkha. It's why we Buddhists are seen as such strange birds. We get curious about dukkha. The Buddha said, turn to dukkha. See your dukkha. Open to your dukkha in all its forms. That's actually a doorway. And so the last, the third of the practices around this truth is that dukkha has been understood. We know in our bones what's being pointed to here, what this teaching is. And this leads to confidence or trust that we're not in the thrall or the delusion about the nature of dukkha. We know it for ourselves. And the Buddha actually said in his inimitable way of lists upon lists, so there's three uh, aspects to each of the truths. For dukkha, there's three kinds of dukkha. There's dukkha-dukkha. That's kind of garden variety dukkha. That's the dukkha of heart, of mind, that first arrow that we'll all experience. We have, we are, we will. The dukkha of loss, the dukkha of the body. Um, And then there's, well, I'll go through dukkha-dukkha. This is, um, the Buddha gave this long list of what's this kind of dukkha. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, distress, and despair are dukkha. Not getting what you want is dukkha. Getting what you don't want is dukkha. Being separated from what and who you love is dukkha. You recognize those forms of dukkha? You know, we know these so well. But then he always penetrates a little bit more deeply. This, uh, these other kinds of dukkha that he saw all also cause suffering. The next kind is viparinama dukkha. And this is sometimes called the dukkha of alternation. 
because he saw that even in happiness, there's dukkha, because happiness inevitably comes to an end. Even if you get what you thought you wanted, it's going to end, it's going to change, it's going to become otherwise. Whatever it is, a relationship, another person, a job, a car, you know, how long does it take before the first dents or scratches, you know, make it just not quite as shiny as it was when you desired it. And even the most sublime meditation state has to come to an end. It's a conditioned thing. It will come to an end. We wait and wait and want and long for some experience. As soon as it begins, its ending is inevitable. It's right there in its beginning. This is the dukkha of alternation, viparinama dukkha. And then, in some ways even more subtle, he called sankara dukkha. And that's the fact that everything in this conditioned realm is just that conditioned and constructed. And if it's conditioned and constructed, it will fall apart. It cannot give lasting happiness. And sometimes we can taste that. You know, in some ways you can see it, you know, certainly about objects. As I said, the car was shiny and then it's not, or whatever thing that you really, you know, focused on. You know, phones are such a great example of this, of how they... People line up for hours, days even, to get a phone that a day later you could get in the mail, you know. And you get it, and then, you know, how long before the next one is the next big thing that people then grasp onto? It's so ephemeral. I can remember being on a a long retreat like this one, weeks in, you know, the mind getting calm and quiet, still, And just on opening my eyes and seeing just the meditation hall, pretty simple form and color, just the kind of weariness of just the construction of the world getting created again in my mind, in that relationship to things. Out of the stillness of the meditation, there was just a weariness in seeing that. The Buddha had a really different way of seeing the world. He said, it disintegrates, therefore it is called the world. It disintegrates, therefore it is called the world. Now what disintegrates? The eye disintegrates. The ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind, consciousness, and their corresponding sense doors. It disintegrates, therefore it is called the world. Now we say, It's solid, therefore we call it the world, right? But he's pointing to a radically different way of seeing. And his way of seeing is the seeing that frees, is the way out of that suffering. This is the non-clinging that Joseph Goldstein spoke about the other night. We start to see things differently. We see that uh, it's... It, you know, some, someone says, suffering is rope burn. We're trying to hold on to what's inevitably moving and changing. And the more we let go or in alignment with that truth through our clear seeing, the less suffering we'll have. 
Now, as I use this word again and again, there's a reason why Buddhists are sometimes considered melancholy, um, a melancholy lot. I actually don't think that's true. I think it's a misunderstanding because this teaching doesn't mean that the world is full of gloom and doom. Sometimes it can kind of seem that way, but it's not what this is pointing to. You can have a lot of what is meant to bring happiness, what, the, what our culture, what society tells us should bring you happiness. You can have a lot of that. Many of us here do, if not all of us. We have so many blessings to be able to be here and still feel dukkha, still feel some strong or subtle sense of dissatisfaction, of incompleteness, of there's got to be something more than this. So many uh, examples of that. We're here because we've seen through that story that society tells us that if you get this or these things, if you look in this way or have this accomplishment, these letters after your name or whatever it is, this kind of relationship, then you should be happy, right? It doesn't work that way. Again, from the Buddha, there is one thing, O monks, the not seeing of which keeps you bound. What is that one thing? The truth of suffering. Not seeing dukkha keeps you bound. What we see when we start to look is we actively try not to see it, right? All of the strategies, the um, things that we've tried to not see, open to, experience dukkha, all of the chasing after what we thought was pleasant or promising. So through distraction, you know, the busy, restless mind that we all brought with us at the beginning of the retreat and is probably still pretty much with us today. It doesn't mind, doesn't change in huge degrees. Um, I mean, it does and it doesn't, right? Um, that tendency, we've, we've trained it. And as a society, as in many cultures, we've been also had the example of using intoxicants to dull and confuse the mind so we don't feel as much to try and avoid that kind of suffering. And then just defense mechanisms, denial or repression. We don't want to feel it, so we close down, we push away. These are all strategies we've tried. We project outward, we blame others or our situation experience. Oh, that's why I'm suffering. It's their fault. It's this condition. And the Buddha said again and again, those strategies don't work. Turn around. Face your own experience and mind directly because inevitably all of us will sooner or later have some dukkha that we cannot strategize around, strategize away. And the Buddha said, better to now face it, to come to terms with it, so you can understand it. And in that understanding, not be so caught. And then he said, 
That's first noble truth, dukkha, understanding dukkha. He said, what is the cause of dukkha? And the cause, he said, was tanha, Pali word tanha. We usually translate it as craving. But John Peacock, a Buddhist teacher and scholar, says, craving doesn't begin to convey the pathos of the Pali word tanha, which actually means unquenchable thirst. So inherent in this word tanha is that it's never satisfied. Because, and we've, I think we've talked a little bit about the different forms of, of desire. I think James talked about that. There can be wholesome desires. Inherent in this cause of suffering, tanha, is that it's insatiable, never satisfied, always connected to suffering. And that's what we really have to understand. And again, includes the not wanting, the not pushing away, um, the aversion piece as well. And the Buddha, in his wisdom, said, there are three forms of this kind of tanha, craving. So again, what I see the Buddha's doing in these lists is this deconstruction, there's something that's really big, a craving, cause of all suffering. But see, you can see these different forms or flavors here might help us understand its nature a little more clearly. So the first uh, form of tanha craving is kama tanha. And that's, again, sort of ordinary, everyday craving for sense pleasures. Just wanting um, pleasant things for mind and body, kama tanha. But it gets more interesting. Then he says there's bawa tanha. Bawa means becoming. And it really is this thirst, this urge we have to become something else, something more, to create a sense of self. And some, you know, I say something else, something more. Sometimes we just do it about right here and now, but it's this solidification of our sense of ourself that we can kind of hold on to, identify with, and try to find some security in. So this sense of becoming or birth into a sense of self, and we do it all the time. We wake up in the morning, there I am, and I'm a good meditator or a bad meditator or a sleepy person or a cranky person. I'm a mother or a daughter or I'm a um, kind or I'm grumpy. All of these selves that we create in a day out of this urge to land somewhere, to create something, a strategy for us to find some sense of security. So we keep doing this, creating a sense of self. And then, of course, if there's that sense of creation, there's also got to be the opposite, which is vibhava tanha. Not wanting, non-becoming, desire for non-becoming. And that can be taken to real extreme of, of pulling away from any form of expression of ourselves um, in life to wishing away parts of ourselves or parts of our experience, not liking our anger or our um, experience, all of the self-judgments we might have about ourselves. They're all forms of vibhava tanha, where we push away, don't like, uh, have aversion towards. And so this gives a, a more full flavor to craving because 
usually with craving, we're so entranced in the object and what we see as being pleasurable about it that we don't turn and look at the craving itself and see, as I said, that the very experience of craving is suffering. So we get beguiled. We're leaning forward. There's that reaching out for the object. And so it's hard to see that as suffering. We're so used to thinking, oh no, it's just out there. I just have to get that. And sometimes we know it's just temporary, but boy, do we still want it. Whatever it is that's out there. And here on retreat, the good thing is our capacity for fulfilling a lot of those desires is pretty minimal, but it's amazing the strategies we can create, right? Have you ever taken a look at how you've arranged your day for maximum pleasure? You know, retreat pleasure, granted, but still, pleasure. And I have... um, I don't know, can you call it an acronym when it doesn't make a word? It's a long one. I think I said this before. And particularly on long retreat, you know this one. I call it W-F-T-N-T-T-H. And that's waiting for the next thing to happen. (laughs) So you're sitting, and it gets a little, whatever, boring or restless or achy. Oh, I wish the bell would ring so I could go walk. So the bell rings, you go walk. At some point, what does your mind do? Oh, I wish the bell would ring. Finish this. I could go sit. How many times do you have to go through that sequence to realize that's all that's going to happen next? I mean, sure, there's a meal break here and there, and maybe you do some movement or something, but that's it, right? But the mind goes, oh, no. If only, when, how long? And all there is, is this. I mean, again, we don't say we create the form of retreats to create more suffering, but it does. And that's part of the suffering, right? This restlessness, this thinking that the next thing, we really want to take a look at that mind state, that delusion that there's something out there, the next thing is going to do it, even if it's just another sitting. It's like, oh, then I'm going to figure it out somehow. I was uh, teaching this retreat a few years ago, and a student came in with, she'd been in a, a really good place in her practice with a lot of contentment and ease, and she came in in a total tizzy one practice meeting, And she said, oh, I've just been so agitated. I lost an earring that my husband gave me. And it was just, you know, it wasn't the thing itself. It was what was meaningful for her about her connection with her partner and that it was a gift, etc. She was so bereft. You know, as you get, you get very tender on retreat. It was like, oh, searing. And then she came in the next time and she said, oh, Sally, I retraced my steps and I found it. I was so happy. But they said, I saw immediately on finding it, I became afraid that I would lose it again. And isn't that, you know, just the human condition? I have it, I don't notice that I have it, it's just there, and then I lose it, oh my God, I've lost it, but then I find it, oh, that's so great, but then I could lose it again. We're doing that all the time in one way or another about things, about our inner experience. 
And so, again, not to deny that there are, there is joy and happiness in life. Why we practice the Brahma Viharas, why we talk about the value of contentment. But you start to see that those practices and the contentment that we're talking about isn't based on external conditions, isn't based on us getting what we want. Actually, so much more about letting go. And in this practice of looking at craving, beginning to separate the craving, the desire from the object. Again, I said we get so entranced with the object, we think that's you know, what we need to focus on, or that's what we want to get, or not get, whatever. Look at the craving itself. Look at the craving itself. And start to see the inherent limitation of the happiness that those kind of things can bring. And so with the second noble truth, the practice is the cause of suffering, craving, is to be abandoned. Not out of aversion, not adding aversion to the craving, but seeing really clearly its nature, how it is suffering, and it doesn't bring us happiness. And looking at, as I said, this very engine or force, you can feel it as an energy of craving, just looking for things to land on. It gets one, that's over, where's the next one? Start to look at it itself. And so that shifts, again, shifts our um, perspective or shifts where we're focusing. Uh, what the Buddha keeps saying, don't look out there for your, the problem or the solution. Look inside. Look in your own heart. Look in your own mind. Where is happiness to be found? What is happiness? His answer was Nibbana, this Pali word, Nibbana. And the simplest definition of this Pali word is the ending of greed, the ending of aversion, the ending of delusion. This is what James was talking about the other night. Nibbana literally means to cool, to cool down. Um, in, in Thailand, they've taken a lot of Pali words and, and uh, used them in their language. So you could say something like, oh, let the rice nibbana, let the rice cool down. It literally means to cool. And again, in context, the Buddha was an Indian man teaching in India, which can be a very hot country, and heat, the heat there can be oppressive. And so the idea of coolness was always appealing. And so this uh, term Nibbana sometimes is also talked about as a cessation, a cessation, but it's cessation of the fire, the burning of craving, not an annihilation as in a kind of throwing away or getting rid of, but unbinding, unbinding the ties that bind. Um, the, the other other sort of ways of talk, talking about it are uh, taking away the fuel that heats that fire of craving. You take away the fuel, the fire will always inevitably go out. And fire is agitated, right? It needs fuel. And we had these you know, terrible wildfires here in California. When the conditions were right, they just consumed everything in their path. They were unstoppable. But eventually, 
the firefighters and conditions were able to take the fuel away. But when that fire is raging, we can feel what it feels like when it's raging in our hearts and what it's like when that fire finally calms down. This is what the Buddha is talking about. And often he talked about it in the negative or what it's not because it's said to be hard to speak about, to have words to describe. So non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, about letting go, about stilling, not about attainment. But sometimes there are teachings that give us a sense of this potential for each of us. The Buddha was a human just like we are human. And so sometimes there are poetical descriptions that might give us um, more of a taste of what the Buddha was talking about. There's this beautiful uh, new collection of translations of what's called the Theragata. They're the poems of the early Buddhist nuns. And they're often their enlightenment poems. And this is a translation by Maddie Weingast, who's a, a serious excuse me, student of the Dhamma, practitioner. And he was just on a long retreat, self-retreat, where he was reading these poems and they spoke to him directly. And he was inspired to uh, reframe them or to put them in his own words. And so he's created these really beautiful translations of these poems. Hopefully they'll get published soon. And so many of them speak to how hard life was for these women. You know, in that day and age, women's lives were very hard. And for them to step out of that role of daughter, mother, wife, parent, and take up the robe, shave their heads, incredibly difficult then to live as a nun in those times. But they were respected in their time. The Buddha often spoke about the wisdom of the nuns. So they would often talk about how hard their lives were and then how something let go. So this is by Uttara and the poem is North. Life was hot, sweaty work. First I learned to control my hands, then my mouth, then my mind body, speech, mind. As things slowed down, I sank down, 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 to the bottom of the heart's sea. I dug out the root of all craving and swam back to the surface. The water had grown cool, and outside everything had grown cool, as though the heart had traveled north. And again, in India, north is cool. That's where the Himalayas are, the mountains are. And so, again, just this imagery of the fire and the challenge, the dukkha of life, and something releasing. I dug out the root of all craving and swam back to the surface. The water had grown cool, and outside everything had grown cool, as though the heart had traveled north. What is the practice here? This kind of cessation of letting go 
The cessation of suffering is to be experienced. That's what the Buddha invites us to do, says that we can do. And he talks about the possibility of this path and the deep and profound freedom that it can bring, that he experienced and countless millions of people have experienced, a full awakening, full letting go. But we don't have to wait for that. We don't have to wait for full enlightenment. Hopefully on this retreat, you've all had tastes, if not many tastes, of the heart letting go, of stillness, of release, of dropping some kind of burden, a moment of mindfulness. It's clarity, it's purity, free of that push or pull, of greed, aversion, and delusion. There's freedom right there in that, that we can know. Again, from Ajahn Chah, he says, let go a little, know a little peace. Let go a lot, experience a lot of peace. Let go completely, experience complete peace. It's this gradual letting go that we're always involved in. And Buddha Dasa, again another great Thai Buddhist meditation master, talked about temporary Nibbana, these momentary openings, letting goes, dropping in, dropping out, that he said, unless we all experienced regularly, we'd go crazy, the mind just in its froth of greed, aversion, and delusion. The fact that we've touched that is why we're here. We have to let that speak to us and trust in our capacity to know that, to deepen in that. And that it's more accessible than we might think. Again, another poem from Dhammadina, and her name means, She Who Has Given Herself to the Dhamma. For so long I thought only of the river's end. Then one morning I set my paddle down to watch the sun rise over the eastern hills, only to find myself floating somehow gently upstream. I promise it was not what I had expected. It's letting go, putting down, and it's never what we expect. So just for yourself, it's helpful sometimes to reflect on those times when you were perhaps gripped by craving, by needing something, 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 so clear, I need, I need. At the beginning of the retreat, whatever it was that you didn't bring, that you were convinced you couldn't survive without. Or a work meditation that was so complex you never thought you could do it. Where is that experience now? Where is that thing that you needed to survive that you don't have and you've been okay? So we practice with that. In the immediacy of the mind bringing up these objects, these experiences, I need, I want, I must have, and really see what that's like. We can practice non-clinging, as Joseph said the other night, and find that kind of release here and now. But luckily, also, the Buddha gave us support in doing that. And that's the fourth noble truth, 
list upon list upon list. What's the fourth noble truth? The Eightfold Path. This amazing map or vision for a whole arc of practice, a whole life of practice. We talk about sila samadhi panya, ethical conduct, uh, meditative development, and wisdom. So these, these eight factors, spokes of the wheel that all feed and form each other of right or wise view and intention, that's the wisdom part. And then speech, action, and livelihood, the sila part. And then effort, um, mindfulness, and concentration. And they're all prefaced with this word samma. We usually translate as right or wise, but it means beneficial or onward leading. This is what the Buddha said um, will lead us on this path, will lead us to Nibbana. It only goes in one direction. And though even so many of the Buddha's teachings were given to monastics, this path speaks to us as lay people, certainly speaks to um, you know, the wisdom that we need and the meditation practice, but also how we live our lives, the ethical conduct, our speech, our livelihood. This speaks to us. And there, again, practices to put into action, to actually be our guides, our signposts. But it leads with wisdom. And what's the classical definition of wisdom, of right view? The Four Noble Truths. And so here we are back in this circular mirrors that reflect each other, the centrality of these teachings um, again and again. So the Buddha said there is a path that goes in one direction only to the kind of freedom that he discovered and that each of us can know for ourselves. So I want to close with a couple more of these poems from the nuns about being on the path. This is from Tisa. Find your true home on the path. Find the path right here in the center of your own heart. If you keep searching in the past and searching in the future, you will search and search and your your searching, but your searching will never end. Find the path right here. The Buddha keeps saying, look inside. This is where freedom is to be found. And then Rohini, wandering star, You don't become the cloth, and this is the the monastic robes. You don't become the cloth just because you put on robes. You don't turn into empty space just because you carry a bowl. The sun doesn't bow down. The trees don't throw flowers at your feet. Birds don't start answering when you call. The path will hold even the biggest mistakes. The path will make room for even your deepest regrets. But you don't become the cloth of the robe overnight. It begins very quietly, something you barely even notice, like the touch of water on your skin, like a knife in a drawer, like the next five minutes, unless they're your last. The past isn't even a line on a map. It's a great shining world. Enter wherever you like. You might get thrown back once or twice, but if you push through the outer layers, 
Oh, my sisters, then you will know the true welcome that is the very essence of the path. This path that we're on that leads to more ease, more freedom, more contentment, the ending of suffering. So let's let the words settle into silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.